Hi, welcome to Come Follow Me with Free, episode 28, The Armor of God. So I want to start out this week by thanking all of you for any referrals that you gave out. I know that lots of you are telling people and that's so great and helps the podcast grow. Another thing that would really, really help is if you can leave a, a, a five-star review, if that's what you feel, um, that also really helps people find the podcast. Um, also, in addition, I am on Instagram. It is come follow me underscore with Brie. And the purpose of that account um, isn't so much to necessarily be a super um, come follow me religious account, um, mostly because I have the bandwidth to do this podcast right now. And I, um, at the moment, don't feel like I am able to stretch myself to start creating a ton of online content as well. Um, however, what I want to use that account for is I'm doing a lot of stories on there. And the purpose of that being is I, I talked about this this week on the Instagram account, but I never want to be just a voice you're listening to. And I have, you have no background. You don't feel like you know me. And especially when I'm kind of, we're talking about the gospel and I'm telling you to you and myself, but I'm telling you to keep the commandments and be faithful. And I think when you, when you don't know a person that can come off as intimidating and like, they're not a real person who has faults and flaws and, and a real life. And so I want you to feel like, you know, me and that I'm just a regular person who really stinks at things sometimes and has chaotic days. And most of the time I don't even look all that great. <laughs> most of my days I don't put on makeup, but I am going to show up on Instagram because I want to make sure that all of you who are listening have access to who I really am in my everyday life so that when you listen to me each week, hopefully, that I'm somebody that you can relate to and who I am not ever trying to put myself up on a pedestal like like I'm perfect at all these things I talk about. I believe in all these things I talk about. I believe that we can all talk about them in a passionate, very absolute way and still mess up and still repent. And it is not hypocritical for any of us to preach the gospel in in a passionate way, knowing that what we are saying is true, and yet still being imperfect and still doing it poorly sometimes. As long as we are in constant acknowledgement that we are not perfect, that we don't do it well all the time, that we need the Savior, that we need the atonement, as all of us do, as long as we are always in acknowledgement of that, then proclaiming the gospel in a passionate way doesn't mean that you are saying that you yourself is perfect. And that's kind of what I hope to convey through Instagram is that I am never trying to put myself up on a pedestal that I am doing all of these things perfectly, even though I believe in them very, very passionately and want to speak about them very passionately. All right. This week, I want to talk about something that hopefully we do every week, which is the sacrament. So although we do it every week, are we doing what is necessary to optimize the protection and the healing and the power that it can give us? So at the beginning of the Come Follow Me manual chapter for this week, it says Sally Knight and Emma Smith were baptized in June 1830, but their confirmations were disrupted by a mob. Two months later, Sally and her husband, Newell, came to visit Emma and Joseph, and it was decided that the confirmation should now be performed and that the group would partake of the sacrament together. While on his way to obtain wine for the sacrament, Joseph was stopped by an angel. What did the angel teach him about the sacrament? So in thinking about the sacrament, 
as long as I can remember, I remember hearing the sacrament prayer every week, and I'm sure a lot of you can as well. And I have one very specific memory from when I was very, very young. I'm not sure how old I was, but I remember two things. I remember counting 100 pages of the hymn book for one of my parents and being so, so proud that I could count to 100. And then I remember asking where the voice came from that said the sacrament prayer. And I hadn't made the connection yet that there were young men up there saying the prayer. It was just this omniscient voice coming from above. Um, And in all that time, so since I was young and I asked where that voice came from, in all that time, the sacrament has been administered throughout my life in the exact same way, by the exact same priesthood, using the exact words that I hear now. So what did the angel teach Joseph? He was taught that it didn't matter what was eaten or drunk for the sacrament. It says, If it so be that ye do it with an eye single to my glory, remembering unto the Father my body, which was laid down for you, and my blood, which was shed for the remission of your sins. So, what matters? Our heart. And isn't it so appropriate, as it is with so many things about the gospel, that the act that renews our covenants isn't focused on the physical specifics. It's focused on our hearts and our minds and our willingness to give ourselves wholly in that moment to the Lord. The efficacy of that ordinance isn't dependent on what you eat or drink as you partake, but it's if we're focused and devoted to the true bread of life and source of living water. In John 6.35, it says, And Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life, and he that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. So in verse 2, what is suggested that we focus on during the sacrament? And it's the Savior's sacrifice, what he did for you specifically. Elder Holland said this, Perhaps we do not always attach the kind of meaning to our weekly sacramental servants, how sacred and how holy it is. Do we see it as our Passover, remembrance of our safety and deliverance and redemption? With so very much at stake, this ordinance commemorating our escape from the angel of darkness should be taken more seriously than sometimes it is. It should be a powerful, reverent, reflective moment. It should encourage spiritual feelings and impressions. As such, it should not be rushed. It is not something to, quote, get over so that the real purpose of the sacrament meeting can be pursued. This is the real purpose of the meeting. And everything that is said or sung or prayed in those services should be consistent with the grandeur of that sacred ordinance. So in hearing all of that, we know that that's true, that this is a sacred part of our week, that this is the most important thing that we do all week long. But I think we've all had the experience of a chaotic Sunday. Maybe you got to church late, or maybe your toddler wouldn't hold still or be quiet. Um, Maybe you had a lesson that day that you're preoccupied with. Maybe you've had some hard things going on in your life that you're distracted by. Or maybe you are distracted by things in the world that are holding your attention a little too tightly. So with this kind of Sunday as a common experience between all of us, What can we do to ensure that our experience with the sacrament is sacred? So if you know me personally, you know that I love creating meaning in anything. If you ask me about any piece of decor in my house, I can tell you what it symbolizes for me. And if I can't make it mean anything in my mind, then I won't put it in my house. And it can be something as simple as I have plants around my house and my plants remind me of Missouri where I grew up and my mom having plants around our house. 
Or I have these painting of trees that I have up on my wall and I just got it at a grocery store one day because I thought they were pretty. And they remind me of the trees where I grew up in Missouri. Or I'm starting to collect old oil paintings that people did that I find at thrift stores and hang them up on my wall. And I collect those because they remind me of the paintings that my grandmother had in her house that she did or her mother did. And those paintings remind me of her and her house. I have a painting over my piano that looks kind of like the Puget Sound in uh, Washington, where I used to live. And I don't think it actually is the Puget Sound, but I decide in my mind that this is the Puget Sound. I could go on and on and tell you many things in my house that some of them are not super obvious. Actually, I'm going to tell you one more. I have this one's kind of a little bit more shows how far I'm willing to go to kind of reach to bring meaning to something if I like it. So there's this abstract work of art that's above my fireplace. And all it is is it's a circle and a line and then two sides that are different colors. And it's really pretty. It's made of beads. Um, but what I've made that mean is... <laughs> You guys are going to think I'm crazy, but the circle, and if you could see it, it would maybe make more sense. But if you could see it, the circle I've decided is Kolob, um, where Heavenly Father resides. And then there's a big, thick golden line going through that circle coming down. And I've decided that I've decided that that's the savior coming down. And then the two sides, one is pink and one is like a creamy white color. And the beads on the white color are pointing up toward the savior. And the beads of the pink are pointing down toward the corner away from the savior. So I think about the savior descending from wherever he is, Kolob maybe, I don't know. Um, and dividing the wicked from the righteous and the wicked are turned away from him and the righteous are pointed up toward him. So I will reach kind of far to make meaning out of whatever is around me. So I think about that same idea in relation to the sacrament. Let's say, for instance, that my kids are not being as reverent as I want them to be. And think all of these things that I'm going to talk about are tricky and they're certainly not ideal. I think ideally you want it to be quiet and reverent and you can think exactly the kinds of thoughts that you want to think. But I don't know that that's always realistic. So if your kids are being crazy, maybe focus on how the Savior feels about you making it to church today, even though you've got these uncivilized hooligans to deal with. Or you could focus on how the Savior has paid for every sin that they will ever make in their life, enabling them to become like Him if they choose. Or focus on how He has paid for every mistake that you will make as a mother. And if you lay those inadequacies before Him, that He will enable your effort to be enough. So another situation might be, say you're distracted that you have a lesson next hour and you feel stressed about it. Try to distract your mind just a little by turning that worry toward the Savior instead. Think about the time that you spent preparing that lesson and consecrate it to the Savior because you love him and you desire to serve him by feeding his sheep. Or um, think about the people that you will be teaching and how wonderful it is that he knows each one of them intimately through the atonement and his spirit that knows them perfectly in a way that you can't will be there to guide your words during that lesson. Or think about the topic of your lesson and how it ties back to the love the Savior has for us. Because we know that it all, every single piece of the gospel can all tie back to that. See, you can turn any distraction toward the Savior. 
And I'm pretty sure that any of my family that's listening is giggling because they know how far I will reach to create meaning in whatever I want to have meaning. And I consider this um, practice with the sacrament a similar skill. So turn all of your distractions. They can all be turned toward the Savior. And I think the goal is that maybe every week won't be like that and we can have a more relaxed um, train of thought happening during the sacrament. But we might have phases in our life where it feels like it's kind of like that every week. But I think if we are constantly trying to turn our thoughts toward the Savior during the sacrament, we will have aid in doing that. So Elder Holland gives us some ideas of what we can think of. And if you have listened to me for a while, you know that I love a good long quote, especially if Elder Holland is talking. So buckle up. If remembering is the principal task before us, what might come to our memory when those plain and precious emblems are offered to us? We could remember the Savior's premortal life and all that we know him to have done as the great Jehovah, creator of heaven and earth and all things that in them are. We could remember that even in the grand council of heaven, he loved us and was wonderfully strong, that we triumphed even there by the power of Christ and our faith in the blood of the Lamb. We could remember the simple grandeur of his mortal birth to just a young woman, one probably in the age range of those in our young women's organization, who spoke for every faithful woman in every dispensation of time when she said, Behold the handmaid of the Lord, be it unto me according to thy word. We could remember his magnificent but virtually unknown foster father, a humble carpenter, by trade who taught us, among other things, that quiet, plain, unpretentious people have moved this majestic work forward from the very beginning and still do so today. If you are serving almost anonymously, please know that so too did one of the best men who ever lived on this earth. We could remember Christ's miracles and his teachings, his healings and his help. We could remember that he gave sight to the blind and hearing to the deaf and motion to the lame and maimed and the withered. Then on those days when we feel our progress has halted and our joys and our views have grown dim, we can press forward steadfastly in Christ with unshaken faith in him and a perfect brightness of hope. We could remember that even with such a solemn mission given to him, the Savior found delight in living. He enjoyed people and told his disciples to be of good cheer. He said we should be as thrilled with the gospel as one who had found great treasure, a veritable pearl of great price right on our doorstep. We could remember that Jesus found special joy and happiness in children and said all of us should be more like them, guileless and pure, quick to laugh and to love and forgive and slow to remember any offense. We could remember that Christ called his disciples friends and that friends are those who stand by us in times of loneliness or potential despair. We could remember a friend we need to contact or better yet, a friend we need to make. In doing so, we could remember that God often provides his blessings through the compassionate and timely response of another. For someone nearby, we may be the means of heaven's answer to a very urgent prayer. We could and should remember the wonderful things that have come into our lives and that all things which are good cometh of Christ. Those of us who are so blessed could remember the courage of those around us who face more difficulty than we, but who remain cheerful, who do the best that they can, and trust that the bright and morning star will rise again for them as surely as he will do. On some days we will have cause to remember the unkind treatment he received, the rejection he experienced, the injustice, oh, the injustice he endured. When we too 
then face some of that in life, we can remember that Christ was also troubled on every side, but not distressed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, cast down, but not destroyed. When those difficult times come to us, we can remember that Jesus had to descend below all things before he could ascend above them, and that he suffered pains and afflictions and temptations of every kind that he might be filled with mercy and know how to succor his people in their infirmities. To those who stagger or stumble, he is there to steady and strengthen us. In the end, he is there to save us, and for all this he gave his life. However dim our days may seem, they have been darker for the Savior of the world. In fact, in a resurrected, otherwise perfected body, our Lord of this sacrament table has chosen to retain for the benefit of his disciples the wounds in his hands and his feet and his sides, signs, if you will, that painful things happen even to the pure and the perfect. Signs, if you will, that the pain in this world is not evidence that God doesn't love you. It is the wounded Christ who is the captain of our soul, he who yet bears the scars of sacrifice, the lesions of love and humility and forgiveness. All right. Oh my goodness, that last part. It is the wounded Christ who is the captain of our soul. What a powerful message from Elder Holland. So we have so many things to think about because he did so much for us and he means so much to us. This chapter ends by reminding us to put on the whole armor of God. And certainly the act of partaking of the sacrament worthily and treating it with the reverence and sincerity deserved by our Savior who sacrificed for us is part of putting on the whole armor of God. It's starting us off on a good foot each week, resetting our commitment to always remember him and keep his commandments, that we may always have his spirit to be with us. But in addition, Elder Ballard reminds us that there is not one great and grand thing that we can do to arm ourselves spiritually. True spiritual power lies in numerous smaller acts woven together in a fabric of spiritual fortification that protects and shields from all evil. The sacrament is the most important moment of our week and certainly the most important moment in our church service. But we are told here that there is not one great and grand thing that we can do to fully arm ourselves spiritually. We must put on the whole armor of God. Before I read this next scripture, I want you to think about the phrase, the whole armor of God. Why is the word whole on there? He could say, put on the armor of God. But he said, put on the whole armor of God. If you are putting on real physical armor, but you only put on some of it, what's the consequence of that? You are vulnerable somewhere. So in section 27, verse 15, it says, Wherefore, lift up your hearts and rejoice and gird up your loins and take upon you my whole armor, that ye may be able to withstand the evil day, having done all that ye may be able to stand. So the first part of that, we are to rejoice in the gospel. Something I've been working on lately is talking more about the gospel in my daily conversations. It is the good news. It is the reason I am here. It is the reason you are here. And we should rejoice. The Savior loves all of us and sacrificed for all of us. He has a plan for me and for you. And he has a perfect plan for this great work to be accomplished. A work that is to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of man. Made possible for every person that you have ever or will ever meet. 
Now, if that's not a reason to rejoice and to tell the whole world about it, I don't know what else would be. The next part, he says, gird up your loins, which means that we should be ready to move against evil because evil will for sure move against you. So we need to not stand passively by. We must gird up our loins and always be ready to stand as a witness at all times and in all things and in all places. And just as a side note, there's some words similar to whole again, not sometimes, all times, all things and all places. And as we take that stance where we are ready to move against evil, it says in verse 16, Stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, having the breastplate of righteousness, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, which I have sent mine angels to commit unto you. So the first part of that, it says, having your loins girt about with truth. There is truth. Don't be deceived by the world we live in. We as mortals do not get to decide based on the false moral relativity we are experiencing what truth is. We don't get to decide. And I think it's important that that is paired with girding up our loins. We are prepared to move against evil when we are firm on what truth is. There is truth and it has been revealed by the only people authorized to speak for the Lord. And side note, that's what we learn in section 28. Our prophets, there are true principles. Spencer W. Kimball taught, Jesus operated from a base of fixed principles or truths rather than making up the rules as he went along. Thus, his leadership style was not only correct, but also constant. And additionally, Boyd K. Packer taught, procedures, programs, and the administrative policies, even some patterns of organization, are subject to change, but the principles, the doctrines, never change. Never change. I love all of these absolute words. They don't change to fit our current culture. They don't change to make us feel more comfortable in sin. They don't change so that we can be more popular with the world. They don't change because we struggle with a concept. Truth is truth is truth. And all of those things I just talked about are the same struggles that have been going on since the world began. Our job is to trust that his ways are higher than ours. Elder Holland said in his talk, Israel, Israel, God is calling. Our compassion and our love, fundamental characteristics and requirements of our Christianity must never be interpreted as compromising the commandments. As the marvelous George MacDonald once said in such situations, we are not bound to say all that we believe, but we are bound not to even look like what we do not believe. And to go along with that, next we have the breastplate of righteousness. In order for there to be righteousness, there must be wickedness. And if there is righteousness and wickedness, there is right and wrong. Truth isn't affected. If it hurts your feelings, it is what it is, and it must be so. In 2 Nephi chapter 2, verse 11, it says, For it must needs be that there is an opposition in all things. If not so, my firstborn in the wilderness, righteousness could not be brought to pass, neither wickedness, neither holiness, nor misery, neither good nor bad. Wherefore, all things must be a compound in one. Wherefore, if it should be one body, it must needs remain as dead, having no life, neither death, nor corruption, nor incorruption, happiness, nor misery, neither sense, nor insensibility. Wherefore, it must needs to have been created for a thing of naught. Wherefore, there would have been no purpose in the end of its creation. Wherefore, this thing must needs destroy the wisdom of God and his eternal purposes, and also the power and mercy and justice of God. And if ye say that there is no law, 
ye shall also say there is no sin. And if ye say there is no sin, ye shall also say that there is no righteousness. And if there be no righteousness, there be no happiness. And if there be no righteousness nor happiness, there be no punishment nor misery. And if these things are not, there is no God. And if there is no God, we are not, neither the earth. For there could have been no creation of things, neither to act nor be acted upon. Wherefore, all things must have vanished away. Don't buy in to this postmodern idea that there is no sin. It is not true. It is a deceitful, horrible lie from the adversary designed to drag you carefully down to hell. It flatters our minds to hear that nothing that we are doing will have eternal consequences. Therefore, we need to put on that breastplate of righteousness. That breastplate, it protects our heart. So our heart is not turned from him. Our heart is not hardened in order to protect our own vanity and our own desire to feel safe and like nothing we can do is wrong. Denying that righteousness will not protect you. Affirming righteousness, affirming that there is good and there is evil and using that breastplate of righteousness will protect you and keep your heart in a condition that will allow you to be influenced still by the Spirit, to keep your heart soft. And the last part of that verse is the preparation of the gospel of peace. Haven't we been told over and over again to be prepared? And what happens when we are prepared with the gospel? We are prepared and we have peace. We need not fear. We know who is in charge. We know who is at the helm. And with that knowledge comes incredible peace. All right, next verse, verse 17. Taking the shield of faith, wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. So my favorite one, the shield of faith. I love that description. Our faith is a protection to us. Faith is how we claim access to spiritual blessings, including the ability to withstand all the fiery darts. And who should we have faith in? Mosiah 5.12 tells us, For salvation cometh to none, except it be through repentance and faith on the Lord Jesus Christ. And I am yet again reminded of my favorite scripture, which is Helaman 5.12. And now, my sons, remember, remember that it is upon the rock of our Redeemer, who is Christ, the Son of God, that ye must build your foundation that when the devil shall send forth his mighty winds, yea, his shafts in the whirlwind, yea, when all his hail and his mighty storm shall beat upon you, it shall have no power over you to drag you down to the gulf of misery and endless woe because of the rock upon which ye are built, which is a sure foundation, a foundation where if men build, they cannot fall. Faith in the Lord Jesus Christ will ensure that you cannot fall. And there's another one of those absolute words like whole and all. It's not that you hopefully won't fall or you probably won't fall. You cannot fall. And lastly, in verse 18, it says, Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of my spirit, which I will pour upon you and my word, which I reveal unto you and be agreed as touching all things whatsoever ye ask of me and be faithful until I come and ye shall be caught up that where I am, ye shall be also. Amen. So the helmet of salvation, Elder Robert D. Hell said, the helmet of salvation guards our reasoning, intellect, and thoughts. And, oh man, if we have any time that we need that, that would be right now. This is a very confusing time to live. And if you don't think that you could be deceived, if I don't think that I could be deceived, we need to think again. 
we are told that the very elect will be deceived if we don't have the constant companionship of the Holy Ghost. I think that this should be a constant prayer that we all have to have the helmet of salvation, to protect our minds from the adversary, an adversary who is cunning, who is smart, who knows where we are weak and only has one desire to drag us down to be miserable like he is. And the next thing is the sword of my spirit. How powerful is the spirit of the Lord? We, I'm sure a lot of us have heard when missionaries go out into the mission field or when you're talking to other people, or I even hope as I'm doing this podcast, it is not us doing the work because the spirit of the Lord is so powerful and there is nothing more convincing. There is nothing more powerful than the spirit of the Lord, the sword of his spirit. And we are promised in here that he will pour it out on us. And we are promised by our prophets right now that we will see the spirit of the Lord poured out on us, giving us blessings more than we can even receive. We are told by President Nelson that it will become clear to us in the future, in the near future, that God is at the helm. If we have the spirit, if we are in tune, it will be miraculously clear to us. And how beautifully he ends this. Whatsoever ye ask ask of me and be faithful until I come. This is where we get our promise. This is what we hope for, what we dream of. Ye shall be caught up that where I am, ye shall be also. That will happen. We will be with him. We shall be caught up and be where he is. I want to leave you with the thought in the end about these absolute words that we've been talking about. We are told to put on the whole armor of God, that we cannot fall, that we need to stand at all times and in all things and in all places. These absolute words, when we are told to put on the whole armor of God, that means we have a responsibility to do so. But it also means something else amazing. God prepared that whole armor for us. That perfect protection is there for us to take up. We can be perfectly protected from the adversary. And if we do these things, if we put on the whole armor of God and build our foundation on that firm foundation, our Savior Jesus Christ, we cannot fall. And I say these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.